Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 20 years ago, a pastor called Joe Wright opened the new sessions of the Kansas Senate in the US with this prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that is exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We confess we've ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We've abused power and called it politics. We have coveted our neighbour's possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honoured values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who've been sent to direct us to the centre of your will. I ask it in the name of your Son, the living Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. As you can imagine, it shocked the Senate. It was not the sort of prayer they were used to. But it is a prayer that demonstrates brilliantly what we find in Ezra chapter 9. Uh, Over these past weeks in the book of Ezra, uh, most of you have been here, a number of you won't have been though, we've been considering how the church can be reformed, that is remade to be the church that we need to be. And in this momentous week, a week that has triggered the beginning of the process to leave the EU, do we not realise that this nation needs the church to be all that it should be? Many in this nation today feel all at sea, more so than they did last week. People have lost their moorings. And at this time of uncharted choppy waters, many will be looking for stability from somewhere and they don't know where they're going to find it. They don't have the answers. But we do have the answer. Now, please, that is not to say that we want to trot out glib, simplistic answers to the complexities of Brexit. Of course, of course we don't want to be crass as to suggest that there's nothing to worry about, nothing to work out. But this is my point. In Jesus Christ, we do know one who is sure and certain and steadfast. In Jesus Christ, we know one who never changes and who is completely reliable and dependable. We know one in whom we can have a certain future, completely safe and secure in eternity. Nothing has changed. And isn't that brilliant to know? So you see, in Christ, we have what everyone needs. Well, that's always been true, but what many will begin to sense they need in the light of this momentous week 
And so this nation needs the church to be all that it should be so that as this nation is searching around for some answers, we are what we ought to be and can give them answers. The greatest answer. Here in chapter 9, we see Ezra praying a prayer of confession and repentance. And I, I want to suggest that that is a key step to us, the church, becoming all that we should be. As we read verse 1 of chapter 9, Ezra, along with, remember from last week, 1,750 men and their wives and children had travelled 900 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And you remember, they made that momentous journey in order to help to reform, to, to reshape, if you will, the life of the people of God in Jerusalem. And at the beginning of chapter 9, they'd been in Jerusalem for around four and a half months, if you're interested Chapter 7, verse 9, and chapter 10, verse 9 give you the dates to know that that's how long they've been there. During those four months, chapter 8, verse 36 tells us that Ezra had travelled around the country delivering the king's orders to the officials of Trans-Euphrates, the area that he was in. Now, I presume Ezra showed the officials the letter he'd received from the king of Persia, uh, King Artaxerxes. Uh, We read that letter in chapter 7 a few weeks ago. It gave Ezra royal permission to go about his business and ensured that he was funded by the local authority. In chapter 9, verse 1, after these things had been done, after they'd sort of packed and uh, unpacked and arrived and gone around the, the country for four months, After these things had been done, once he visited the government officials, Ezra tells us, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Ezra has lived among these people for the last four months. And I'm presuming that then these people had seen in Ezra something quite spectacularly good and they wanted to tell him what was going on. They got to know Ezra. Perhaps they got to know him as we got to know him a few weeks ago, chapter 7, verse 10, that he was a man of the word of God and they knew they could trust him. And so the leaders of Jerusalem came to him with a problem. And in short, the people of Jerusalem were not living distinctive lives. See there, verse 1, they have not kept themselves separate. Verse 2, they have mingled with the people around them. And verse 2, mingled the the holy race. A, a, A people who should be distinctive, that's what holy means, are now mingled. They're just like everyone else. It was a problem that was most clearly seen in them intermarrying. Now, please, please be sure there is nothing racist about that comment. Intermarrying here was not an issue of race or ethnicity. The issue is, if I can put it this way, theologically relational. By which I mean it's about the impact that intermarrying has on our relationship with the Lord. You see, if my closest human relationship and my greatest human loyalty is to someone who does not follow the Lord, it will be very difficult for me to be distinctively and wholeheartedly committed to the Lord. If the person I'm closest to has a completely different worldview, lives life by some other complete 
entirely different approach to life, I will find it very difficult to remain faithful to the Lord. And that is exactly what was happening. Verse one, they have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. So the presenting issue was that they were intermarrying, marrying people who didn't follow the Lord. But the underlying problem was that they were not putting the Lord first. The list of nations at the end of verse one reminds us that this is precisely what the Lord had said as he brought his people out of Egypt. Uh, Look, just so that you see this isn't a new thought, turn back with me to Exodus chapter 34. Page 93 is the page number if you have a church Bible. It's Exodus chapter 34. And bear in mind that long list of uh, nations that I've just read for us in, uh, in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 9. And then as we read Exodus chapter 34 uh, verse 11, this is where uh, God the Lord has led his people out of Egypt and he is preparing them for en- to enter into the promised land, a land that at the moment is filled with all these other nations. And look what he says to them, Exodus chapter 34, verse 11. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Yes, that's very similar to the list of names that we read in Ezra chapter 9. And then he says, verse 12, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Don't worship another god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. See, as the people of God entered the promised land, they were not to make a covenant with the people around them, not to follow the customs and practices of the nations around them. They were not to worship the gods of the nations around them. But that is precisely what they had done in Ezra's day. And if I may, that is a danger for God's people in every generation. It's usually expressed like this. We are to live in the world but not become like the world. We know that's kind of how it's expressed, but that is very, very difficult to do. As a result, we will always be tempted to go to one extreme or the other. One extreme is for Christians to stay away from having any real engagement with others, to become exclusives, to have as little to do with the world as possible. That's no good. How can we possibly help people to know the Lord Jesus if we don't spend time with them? So we need to. But that's that's a kind of sometimes a right desire. I don't want to become like the world. The other extreme is to become so immersed in the world, to become friends with the world to, to such an extent that there's nothing distinctive about us anymore. Again, that can happen from a right desire to be living among people so that we can tell them about Jesus. But let me tell you what happens, what my dangers are when I do that and see if it resonates with you. First, when I am living among people who aren't Christians because I want them to become Christians, I am tempted to keep quiet about the things I believe that I think might offend them or put them off following Jesus. So I don't say anything very distinctive. 
in case it puts them off, even though I want them to become Christians. Uh, Secondly, I try to live my life in a way that doesn't look weird. Some of you will say you failed terribly in that, but that's up to you. But I don't really want to look any different, you see. I don't want to be put off by the way I live. And third, I find myself very attractive by the things the world has to offer when I live among people who aren't Christians. I see people living a materialistic and hedonistic life, and I really like that idea as well. Don't you? Honestly? I would love to have more home comforts. I mean, I've got plenty of them. I'd just like to have more. I would love to have more holidays and spend more time in leisure activities, like, here's a surprise, playing tennis. There's nothing wrong with those things. I'm just saying it's very easy for me to be driven by these things rather than me have God and the gospel and eternity as my primary focus. In short, what I'm trying to say is it's very easy for me to blend in with the world around me and not to live a life that is decisively and distinctively putting the Lord and his things first in my life. It starts off perhaps from a right desire. I want to share the gospel with people but it's very very difficult to remain distinctive as I've already said I think we've seen something of that in the responses that Christians have made following the result of the EU referendum many Christians who posted on social media on this issue have not said anything to suggest that the sovereignty of God and his purposes have shaped their thinking they've just said all the same things with lots of anger and little grace I prayed about the the, the, the exams. You know, uh, there's a great opportunity in exam time to be different. Work hard, do your best, try to get good grades, but actually to have this quiet confidence that uh, the Lord is in control. That it's not as everybody says, it all depends on this or your life is over. Life isn't over if if you don't get your exam. I I did hopelessly in my exam. That isn't an encouragement to you at all because look how I ended up. But I'm just saying it's not the end of everything. Uh, My point is on far too many issues we sound and look just like the world. We're not distinctive. And that was the problem in in Ezra's day. And when Ezra heard that that was happening, particularly in intermarrying, but just the general point... He wrote, verse 3, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. He says at the end of verse 4 that he was appalled. That is a very strong word, isn't it? And it's a challenge to me. As I look at the church today, does it appall me that we are not distinctive? Does it appall me that we have become so like the world that, well, the world might as well not bother coming here because we're just like them? And indeed, do I even notice that I, we have become like the world? It is very difficult when we're immersed in the church to look at ourselves objectively and spot where we're no longer distinctive from the world, isn't it? We just got used to how we are. We need someone from outside of ourselves to help us to analyse our situation. That, of course, is why we need God's word and we need it every day, every week. We need to keep coming back to it because every day and every week I'm tempted to become more and more like the world and I need to keep coming back to God's word and God will say to me, you need to live like this to reorientate how I'm living. That is why Ezra was the man for the job. 
Do you remember chapter 7, verse 10? Ezra devoted himself to the study, to the observance, and to the teaching of the law of the Lord in all of Israel. He was so committed to the word of God that he could bring the word of God into this situation. And it was because he was so committed to the word of God that he was so appalled at what he discovered when he heard from the leaders of Jerusalem what was going on. And so verse 3, he tore his tunic and he literally pulled his hair out and he slumped on the floor. And as he sat there, clothes torn, downcast, he tells us, chapter 9, verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out before the Lord my God, and I prayed. Notice twice, there at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, we're told that it was the evening sacrifice that sort of triggered Ezra's response. We don't know how long he was kind of sitting there slumped, uh, torn, clothes torn, pulling his hair and his beard out. We don't know how long that lasted, but at the evening sacrifice, something changed. He got up and he prayed. The evening sacrifice was one of two daily sacrifices that you can read about in in Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 to 43, if you want to follow it up. Exodus 29, 38 to 43. At the morning and evening sacrifice, a lamb was offered, a whole lamb. Importantly, it was the whole animal that was to be burnt up. And the Bible scholar Gordon Wenham associates these daily burnt offerings not just as atonement making, in other words, not just to make us right with God, a sacrifice to make us right with God, it was that, but also because the whole animal was given when often only parts of the animal was given and some of it was given to the priest, but on this occasion the whole animal was given and so Gordon Wenham says these sacrifices were symbolic of a total rededication to God. So as the priest made a sacrifice morning and evening on behalf of the nation, it was both a sacrifice for the nation to be atoned for, but also for the nation to be completely committed, completely rededicated to God. In other words, to become holy, to be distinctive, to be the people they should be. He saw the evening sacrifice. He saw that the people weren't out like that and he prayed. That's the motivation behind Ezra's prayer. And it is a prayer of confession. This prayer of confession was a prayer of rededication, a prayer of longing that the whole nation was completely dedicated to the Lord and distinctive from the nations around them. In these last weeks, I've already said, through the book of Ezra, we've been discovering what we need to, in order to realise a reformation in the church in Britain. And here we see that confession of our sin is going to be crucial If we, the church, not just here, but right across the nation, becomes what we ought to be. And it seems to me, as I've read this, that we do need to learn this. The the evangelical church, or the Bible-believing church in Britain, is not big on confession and repentance. I've been to many church services down through the years of good evangelical churches where there has been absolutely no prayer of confession. Now, it might just have been that I went one week when they didn't have a prayer of confession, but I wonder if that's not actually the case. 
Well, here at Christchurch Forward, we do tend to have a prayer of confession in our services. We're going to have one later. Often it's at the beginning of the service. But I want to ask, how heartfelt is it? It's very easy when we come to that moment to say, oh, yeah, we read these words off the page. Yeah, this is the confession. We do that every week. But not really to think about it or to feel it. I have to say I don't get the impression that genuine heartfelt confession is part of our individual spiritual disciplines. When I pray with others at the prayer gathering in small groups, one-to-one, very rarely do I hear people confessing their sin. My guess would be, I might be wrong on this, do come and tell me, loads of you afterwards, if I'm wrong, but my guess would be that in your daily times of Bible reading and prayer, if you have one at all, my guess is that not many spend time confessing sin. Now that says to me we don't really feel the weight of our sinfulness. And it says to me that we're not really bothered by our sin. But a deep awareness of sin and with it confession of sin is absolutely crucial if we're to be reformed, to be changed, to be the church we ought to be. Because very simply confession and repentance is a crucial part of any healthy relationship. It is really healthy in my marriage when I admit where I am wrong and ask for forgiveness. It is actually a sign of deep deep commitment to Caroline when I feel the weight of letting her down. It is a sign, is it not, of my respect for her when I tell her that I'm sorry. When I admit to Caroline that I've been self-centred and selfish, I am far more likely then to change. Confession and repentance is a crucial part of any healthy relationship. So it is with God. So if I do not confess, I'm either not aware of my sin, or I don't think that I'm a sinner really, or I don't care what impact my sin has on God or others. Do you see, we need to recover repentance and confession as a healthy part of our relationship with the Lord. Well, enough about confession in general. As we uh, draw towards a close, page 14 of 21, well, we're two-thirds of the way through, let's, um, let's look at the details of Ezra's prayer of confession. First note, the corporate nature of confession, verse 6. Just look how Ezra prays. Fascinating. Oh, my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you My God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. You see the language there? Ezra hasn't been involved in the appalling actions of the nations. He's only been there four months. Didn't even know most of this was going on. He could easily have prayed, oh God, look at the state of the nation. Oh God, look what they've done. Oh Lord, change them. He hadn't personally committed these sins, yet he knew he was part of the people of God and the sin of God's people were his sins. This is very important. It is very easy for us to look at the wider church of England or the church in England and to wipe our hands of them. I confess I've done that. And it is very easy to become proud and full of ourselves when we do that. Look at us. We're growing, the rest of the church isn't, which isn't true, but that's how we put it. Look at them. Look at all the things they're doing wrong. We're not doing those things. 
Now, put like that, surely you can feel how thoroughly ungodly that kind of approach is. It is actually a very proud way to pray, and proud praying is a misnomer. We need to confess corporately. We need to acknowledge that we are part of the wider church in this land and around the world. And when the church sins, it's not their problem, it's our problem. And when there is sin in this church family, even if I haven't committed that particular sin, I need to say with Ezra, verse 6, our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heaven. Note the corporate nature of confession. Secondly, the acknowledgement of what we deserve. Verse 7. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign gods as it is today. You see, Ezra recognised that the exile that his people had experienced was entirely justified. It was an entirely appropriate punishment for sin. Uh, To be in exile was to be cast out of the presence of God. And Ezra is saying here, that is what our sins deserve. Left to ourselves, that is exactly what we should get from your hand, O God. Do you see, in confession, I need to acknowledge what I actually deserve. I am a pitiful sinner. I deserve God's punishment. I should be cast out of his presence forever. It seems to me until I acknowledge that in confession, until I feel that in my heart, I won't ever feel the wonder of forgiveness. And it is only when I know the extent of forgiveness that I will offer my whole life to the Lord afresh which will in turn bring about a great reformation the corporate nature of confession the acknowledgement of what we deserve thirdly an awareness of our position in history look at verses 8 and 9 Ezra prays, but now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary and so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He's shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He's granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins and he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. You see, Ezra understood that he and the people of God were living in a brief moment of history when the Lord has been so kind and merciful in bringing the exiles home. It's everything we've been reading about through the first eight chapters. We've seen in the previous chapters how God had moved in the hearts of unbelieving kings to enable his people to return from exile. We've seen how the Lord had provided the exiles with huge wealth through those unbelieving kings, giving them money when just from nowhere. And as a result, they'd been able to rebuild the temple. They'd been able to return to Jerusalem. He'd given them a unique opportunity. In confession, we too can see the particular moment that we are in history. Through the extraordinary kindness of God, he's brought us out of exile in Christ. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can know complete forgiveness. In Christ, the slate has been completely wiped clean. This side of the cross, Ezra was the other side of the cross, you know about the cross. This side of the cross, we enjoy a particular moment in salvation history. 
verses 8 and 9 at least that, but let me fly this kite for a moment. Perhaps just as Ezra knew that he and his people were enjoying a special and unique moment in history, so we here in Britain in the 21st century can also see the unique situation we are in in salvation history. Let me explain. We live in a land where there is very little opposition. We live in a land where there is freedom to proclaim the gospel. If not unique, that is highly unusual in the history of the church. All over the world now and down through the history of the church, Christians have been persecuted. But here in Britain, largely, we are free to proclaim the gospel unhindered. And we should acknowledge that. And as a result, in prayer, we should confess, but what have we done with that? See, that's what Ezra said, leading us to fourth, the challenge to respond aright. Verses 10 to 12. He writes, verse 10, but now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, and then he quotes the prophets. See, Ezra says, verses 8 and 9, you've shown us great kindness. We've been able to return to to Jerusalem. We've been able to rebuild the temple. You've been so kind to us. This has been amazing what you've done for us. And how have we responded? By ignoring your word. We've become like the world. And if Ezra said that and felt that, how much more should we? We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the complete revelation and the word of God in our hands. We know complete forgiveness and have eternity secured. We have seen the grace of God in Christ and yet we have turned from him and his word. Choosing instead to get into bed with the world. We should feel that. We should want to change that. And confessing like this should make us want to do something about it. Why confession is so significant and helpful. Lastly, we should cast ourselves on the mercy of God, verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, what has happened to us is a result of of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you've punished us less than our sins have deserved and has given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. He says, God, have mercy. That's what Ezra prays. In verse 13, he acknowledges the astonishing mercy of God in Christ we know God's mercy even more than they did. So here's Ezra, actually without the assurance that we have in Christ, and so he can only acknowledge that he and his people don't deserve to stand in God's presence. That's how it ends, end of verse 15. Ezra can't actually be totally sure of God's mercy and forgiveness and restoration, but we can. See, on the cross, as Jesus Christ took the punishment that we deserved, we can be absolutely sure then that God will not punish us with the punishment that we deserve because his son has already taken that punishment. It's not just that God won't do it. He can't. He would not be just. He would not be himself if he punished his son and then punished us as well. He can't do it. 
So we might pray, end of verse 15. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence, but because of Jesus' death on the cross, we're assured of access into your presence both now and forevermore. When we confess like that, stating that should lift our hearts in thankfulness to God. It should leave us with a deep sense of gratitude to God and in turn it should transform the way we live. You see, confession is good and right. It is healthy and it's necessary for a reformation to be realised. And so we must rediscover what it means to confess. We need to feel the weight of our sin or we will never turn from it. We need to feel the relief of forgiveness and the joy of the mercy and kindness and grace of our God in Jesus Christ. For then we will say, I don't want to sin anymore. I want to live differently now. It will give us a longing to live as we should. It will make us the distinctive people of God. And as we live like that, What a huge difference we will make to a nation which so needs us to be what we should be now. When it is all at sea and doesn't have a clue what the future holds.